Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14, we continue our study. Uh, we will work our way through the whole uh, chapter, but in the interest of time, I'll read the, a little less than the first half of it, beginning with verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave or under the pomegranate tree at Medrash. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. And we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle, and behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp 
Even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. May God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would come and you would preach your word to us, that you would open our ears and our eyes, that we would see and hear our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we would know him and love him and follow him and trust him. We pray that you would drive back the opposing power. Lord, we pray that you would come, that you would speak through your servant, that you would help him to be well aware and keenly conscious of the fact that I'm a dying man preaching to dying people. So come and speak to us now in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. The message today is that God wins even when the leadership is totally incompetent. This sermon is especially dedicated to all who may live across the state line in North Carolina. In the passage before us, Israel defeats the Philistines, while the king of Israel literally does everything wrong. One would be hard-pressed to do more wrong in a single day than King Saul did on that day. But while Israel had a totally incompetent king, they had a perfectly competent Savior. Look at verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. So the message of 1 Samuel 14 is clear. God wins even when the leadership is totally incompetent. And I pray that will be of encouragement to you today. As an American citizen or as a member of a church that I pastor, God wins. He is still on the throne, even when the leadership is totally incompetent. Now let's look at it together. First in this passage, we see a contrast in character. A contrast in character. Look at verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Megron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Now, now right off the bat, there's a contrast set up between father and son, King Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan takes his armor bearer, a young man, on his own to scout out and possibly attack the Philistine position. 
Notice the text points out that Jonathan did not tell his father, the king. We read that he, King Saul, was staying in a pomegranate cave, or better translation, probably be under a pomegranate tree. So as he did in the previous chapter, the king's son outshines his father. King Saul is doing nothing. The boy Jonathan is ready to fight. Saul has 600 fighting men. Jonathan has only the young man who carried his armor. But we see quickly developing a contrast in character between father and son. Secondly, in this passage, we see a contrast in faith. A contrast in faith. Look at verse 3. Including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Now these, these people mentioned here are among those who were with Saul there under the pomegranate tree. And you notice that the great-grandson of Eli is with Saul. That's Ahijah. And you also notice that Ahijah is the grandson of Phinehas. Now, if you've been following in 1 Samuel, you know that Phinehas and his brother, Hophni, they were Eli's sons. Eli was the priest back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And they were so despicably evil and reprobate that they were the reason that Eli's family line was cut off from the priesthood. So this man here wearing the priestly garment, the ephod, he's not a legitimate priest. God cut him off. And then Saul, in the previous chapter, has gotten his line rejected from the kingship. Yes, he's still king, but the Lord had told him it'll end with you. So here we have a rejected king rather than defending the nation from his enemies from their enemies the rejected king is sitting under a tree with a rejected priest now you hold on to that pathetic image as we move ahead in this passage look at verse 6 Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now this is faith. Jonathan's eyes are on the Lord. He's not afraid to go after a garrison of the Philistines only with his armor bearer because he says, You see it, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Yet, on the other hand, he knows that God is not bound to help him. So you see, he says, it may be 
that the Lord will work for us. This is a true living faith. Nothing can stop the Lord. He can do anything he wants. And maybe he'll work for us. There's no name it and claim it here. But there's real trust in God. So he acts in faith. Now the Philistines were encamped in a ravine and Jonathan, we read, he had to pass in armor bearer between two dangerous rocky slopes to get to them. Philistines were confident of their safety at least from that direction. So Jonathan plans to attack from that direction. Look at verse 8. And then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. And they do tell Jonathan to come. They see him and they tell him to come up. Look at verse 12. The men of the garrison hailed Jonathan as armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. At that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a fur's length in an acre of land. That's hard to imagine. Jonathan and his armor-bearer climbing over these treacherous rocks. Clearly the Philistines didn't think they could make it. And then once they got there for Jonathan and his armor bearer by themselves to kill 20 men. But verse 15 supplies the answer. Look at it. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became... A very great panic. Now, this is divine intervention. The Lord frequently throws the enemies of Israel into a panic, which he's done once again. And then we read the earthquake. Most of us felt the earthquake last Sunday morning. Many of us, the first earthquake we'd ever felt in our life. And we know that God controls everything according to his own purposes. And many, if not most times, he brings earthquakes through the natural movement of the earth plates. But here there is a direct divine shaking of the earth because the Lord is making clear that he is doing this. Because Jonathan acted in faith. 
people and the watchmen see this activity and they report it back to King Saul. Saul orders a roll call to figure out who has gone off to fight the Philistines. Of course, they figure out when they hold a roll call, everybody's there but Saul and his armor bearer. Now remember, let's go back to this. Where's Saul? When Jonathan and the armor bearer are off defending the people, doing the Lord's work. Saul is with the rejected priest under a pomegranate tree. Look at Saul's reaction when he gets the news in verse 18. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, number one, Saul is talking to an illegitimate priest. The Lord shut Eli's family down two generations back. And number two, he tells the illegitimate priest to go get the Ark of the Covenant for Israel to take into battle. Now, if you've been following along, you remember that did not work out so well the last time they tried it. It resulted in the death of this so-called priest's granddaddy and his great-granddaddy. But here's what it comes down to. Jonathan has true faith in God. And only God knows Saul's heart, but here his actions show that his religion is largely superstition. You know, why they lost both the battle and the ark itself the last time they tried to pull that stunt. They had grown superstitious. They treated the ark, the sacred sign of the covenant and the presence of God among them, as nothing more than a good luck charm. When trouble comes into our lives, our reaction reveals the quality of our religion. Now, I believe in prayer. Don't pray enough, never have. But I pray. I believe in prayer. But the way we approach prayer when trouble comes, shows us a lot. Most of us have done it. We think, I can just get enough people praying. Maybe I'll get healed. If I can just get enough people praying hard enough, this situation in my life, in my family, will work out the way I want. That's Saul's mentality. If we can get the ark out to the front line, we ought to win the battle. Now contrast that with the faith of his son, Jonathan, who says, basically, I will go to the enemy. 
I'm ready to fight. God can help, and maybe he will. But I'm going. That's real faith. Real faith is when we will be faithful to God, whether or not he does what we want. Faith is not so much praying hard till you get what you want. Real faith is when you learn to keep on praying hard even when you didn't get what you wanted because you've learned to trust God for who he is, not for what you want him to do for you. So Jonathan does his duty. He trusts the Lord. Saul doesn't want to do anything but sit under a pomegranate tree and hope against hope and against the plain lessons of their own history that somehow he could squeeze some good luck out of God. So we see a contrast in character, a contrast in faith. Thirdly in this passage, we see a contrast in common sense. Look at verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground, and when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Now mercifully, the Philistines got there before they could drag the ark out to the front line. They just had to fight. And by the grace of God, they won. It says the Lord saved them. But Saul had made a ridiculous order that no one could eat until the day was over. Presumably, he thought it would motivate the men to fight harder. Instead, it nearly did the men. One night last week, I was watching the Cubs, and one of the commentators for the Cubs game was my all-time favorite player, John Smoltz, my hero from my earliest years. And John Smoltz, they were asking him some questions, and he got to telling about a couple times in his career he got close to pitching a no-hitter. First time early in his career, I think it would have been 1989, he carried a no-hitter through eight innings against the Phillies. But one of the older pitchers that 
he was trying to learn from had told him that he, the older pitcher, he felt better when he pitched on an empty stomach. So he didn't eat on game day till after game. Well, John Smoltz had taken that advice. He hadn't eaten. Pitched a no-hitter for eight innings. And then he was done. After the eighth, he went in a dugout. He saw a zagnut candy bar. He grabbed it and he inhaled it. He took the mound. Got one out in the ninth inning. Then surrendered a base hit to Lenny Dykstra. Smoltz said that's the last time he ever tried to pitch on an empty stomach. And that's the last Zagnut candy bar he ever ate. You know, you don't want to eat a seafood platter five minutes before a foot race. But you can't fight on an empty stomach. Not well. They say it was Napoleon who said that an army marches on his stomach. But here Saul shows no common sense whatsoever. There was an abundance of honey on the ground in the forest, we read. Presumably the hives were dripping. It was, after all, the land flowing with milk and honey. That's what God told them the promised land would be. That's not just an expression. Not God's not given to exaggeration. He meant what he said. It was the land of milk and honey. There's honey dripping. They wanted it so bad. But none of the men dared eat any of it. Well, look at verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I've tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Now Jonathan here, this boy's got common sense. He says, my daddy has troubled the land. Our men could have fought a lot better and maybe finished the Philistines off if only they'd had some decent rations. Now again... Fasting is a legitimate, important spiritual discipline. Jesus gave instructions in the Sermon on the Mount for what we should do when we fast. Paul said he fasted often. But the same God who gave us religion and fasting also gave us some common sense. There's a time to fast. And that was not the time. Look at verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, 
and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. You see that? Saul caused the people to sin. They were so hungry that they did not properly drain the blood in accordance with the law. So Saul asked for a stone so they could slaughter the meat and drain it properly. But you see, by abandoning all common sense, he put his men in a position where they're basically forced to sin. Sure, they could have held off their appetite, but it was Saul's fault. You see a contrast in character, a contrast in faith, a contrast in common sense, and fourthly and finally in this passage, we see a contrast in leadership. Look at verse 36. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the day of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Now Saul wants to continue the battle, but he gets no word from the Lord on what to do. So Saul concludes someone has sinned. And without going into the details, but using the stones, the Urim and the Tumim on the priest's ephod, his holy garment, it is revealed that it was Jonathan. And Jonathan confessed to his father that he ate some honey. And Saul was going to kill his own son. Now look at verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now you see, the people here, they clearly recognize that Jonathan is a better leader than Saul. They will not let their king lay a hand on his son. You know, as we read this passage, we can't help but think, what a waste. Some of you remember the movie Patton. In the scene there at the Battle of El Guitar in Tunisia, the Americans have the high ground in perfect position, and the Germans march into an absolute death trap and are completely annihilated. In one point, Patton looks down on the carnage through his binoculars, says, and I sanitize it. 
That's a heck of a waste of fine infantry. When we think about this boy Jonathan, all we can say is, that's a heck of a waste of a fine leader and soldier, potential king, and just a top-notch young man. His father has already lost his opportunity for Jonathan to be king, and Jonathan is going to die in battle with his father. What a waste. A waste of a great man. A waste of a great opportunity. What a waste. That's a story of mankind, isn't it? We could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and say, what a waste. Saul blew it for his son. Adam blew it for all of us. But the good news for Israel and the good news for us is that God is in the business of undoing the waste. The opportunities, the time, the gifts, we've wasted. Verse 47 says that when Saul became king, he routed the enemy wherever he turned. And he did valiantly and delivered Israel. This passage ends with a positive word about Saul. He did valiantly. How? This terrible king, how did he do valiantly? God. That's how. He's still God. Even when we've blown it. Royally. He's the God who went after Adam when he blew it for us all. He's the God who sent his only begotten son into the world. And you know what Jesus was doing? All his perfect life of perfect obedience to the Father. He was undoing the waste we have made. Do you realize that in his death he was taking the hit, the judgment of God for all the opportunities we have wasted? And in his resurrection he snatched the eternal life that Adam and all us have wasted back from the gates of hell. You know the word salvation comes from the same word as salvage. We're a waste. We've wasted it. But Jesus Christ is in the business of salvaging the waste. He salvaged you. Has he saved you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.